0: Yeah. Aren't, you, aren't you just so happy to be back <laughs> in Missouri? <I> mean Missouri. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys for being here this morning. Um, it is a joy to be here as we keep uh, walking through the book of Philippians where the entire theme is about joy, and it's really about being able to have joy in the midst of any circumstance, no matter what we're going through in life, to be able to find joy, and really because... We are surrendered to our Savior and not to our circumstances. That's how we can have joy in the middle of any situation. And if you find yourself throughout the week just kind of riding the roller coaster, uh, the emotional roller coaster, then that's kind of a sign that maybe we're not taking our cares, our worries to the Lord and laying His feet and we have trouble hanging on to our joy. Uh, because Paul would say the only thing that matters, the only thing that matters regardless of what I'm going through, is that people see Christ in me. And really, that's really all that matters in our lives, too, is that people see Christ in us. Uh, This book seems to be more appropriate than I thought it would be, uh, starting out with now mask mandates coming back, and then talks of Delta variants, vaccines, and all that kind of stuff that is causing so much anxiety. I mean, it's splitting up churches, gang, which is crazy. Uh, With all that stuff coming back, uh, if you are struggling with keeping your joy during this season, then this book is for you. Last week we talked, about, we talked about Paul's wrestling with his emotions being torn between staying here or going to be with Jesus, right? To live as Christ, to die as game. And to him, these were both very good options. Sometimes decisions are easy to make, uh, and sometimes we don't really like the options that are on the table. And when that happens, it becomes pretty stressful. Uh, but Paul would say, "To live is Christ, and to die is actually gain." It is not the final tragedy for the believer, because what is happening there it is ushering us into the presence of our Savior. Uh, it might feel like a tragedy for all of us that are left behind. Uh, we miss that person. I mean, we're not callous. But the truth is, for the person that is leaving, they wouldn't come back even if they could. They wouldn't come back even if they could. That's where we're going. We know that we are earthborn, but we are heaven bound. Amen? But while we're still here on earth, we're supposed to be fruitful. We're supposed to be busy. Jesus told his disciples, he said, do business until I come. When he was telling them the parable of the talents, gave the money, right? He said, the master, I'm going away, but I will be back. Do business until I come. Don't just occupy. We're to be advancing the kingdom of God, the gospel, in our daily lives. Um, oftentimes, we think that this has to be something big, right? Like, Nathan, what am I supposed to do in my life every day to advance The kingdom. And in Matthew 10, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he said this He said, Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Uh, Be faithful, be fruitful, even in the little things, even giving somebody a cup of water, a bottle of water on a hot day, if you're doing it in the name of Jesus, you're not going to lose your reward. I pulled up Matthew chapter 10 because I wanted to see where this verse fell. In that chapter, try to look at the context, um, and it comes all the way at the end. It's kind of interesting because while there weren't, you know, verses and there weren't subheadings and all that stuff in the original text, those were put there to help us be able to digest it and find things easier. I looked at the uh, at the the sub the subject headings, and they broke out this way: Jesus sends the twelve; he sends out the twelve, and then the next section talks about how persecutions will come. Then after that, have no fear. Then the next session, not peace, but a sword. And then lastly, rewards. I just thought it was cool the way it's played out when Jesus sends out the 12, I'm sending you guys out into the world. There's gonna be persecutions, I'm warning you ahead of time, but don't be afraid. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. We call him the Prince of Peace because he brings peace to us as his followers, but he didn't come to bring peace in the world, but a sword. And then if you stay faithful, if you stay fruitful, you will have rewards. Now, Paul told us that he was hard-pressed between these two things because he doesn't know what he would choose if it were up to him. If it were up to him, he doesn't know if he would stay or if he would go. And when we talk about times when we go through great difficulty and we are hard-pressed, it is then that it's critical that we press in and not give in, right? In those times where we're hard-pressed, we need to press in. We need to fight to be able to touch Jesus, to be able to talk to him, to be able to spend time with him. And Paul knows that he needs to stay on their account. While he would love to be loosed, Right. Well, he would be loved to be loosed from the dock that is holding him to this world and set sail or to break camp and to move on. He knows that he needs to stay for their benefits, for their progress in the faith and also for their joy. He'll continue with them. And that's where we left off last week. So let's pick it up here in Philippians chapter one. We're going to finish the chapter today. We're going to do verses 27 through 30. engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. So what's happening here is Paul is moving from his situation and what he's going through to now what the Philippian church is going through and what they're facing. And the verses that we're going through today we might call um, an exhortation, and that's a real Christianese word, so I thought I would look it up in the dictionary and just see what exhortation means, and it's a word that can mean encouragement, it can mean urging, pressuring, pushing, or persuading, so you're kind of getting the point here. It's kind of a strong recommendation. You're pushing, you're persuading, and that's really what we're gonna be talking about today. It's an exhortation. Uh, We use this analogy a lot in the business world, and we say, you know, there are two ways to motivate a donkey, um, because a lot of us are donkeys, let's be honest. (laughs) You can either use the carrot, or you can use the stick. right, you can use the hope of a reward, you can put the carrot out there, or you can use the stick. And um, I'll be honest. Today's more stick than carrot. <laughs> okay, we're warned up front. But here's the here's the deal. If all we do is feed the sheep, but we don't warn the sheep, then we are just fattening them up for slaughter. That makes sense. Shepherd's shepherd's job is to feed the sheep, but also to warn the sheep and guard the sheep. So. Sometimes a stern word is needed, and that is basically what Paul's doing here today. He's encouraging them. He's exhorting them. And what he's about to say is not revolutionary, but it's something that we all kind of struggle with. And it's just consistency, just living a consistent life before the Lord and before people that are looking on. One of the best things that you and I can do to stick it to the devil is to live a consistent life. One of the biggest reasons why people uh, on the outside have no interest in walking in church is because of the inconsistencies that they see in Christians. And if we preach one way and then we live another way, then we're hypocrites, right? It's one of their favorite words for people in the church is they're hypocrites. They say, You people are hypocrites. You say, Well, you should come. You'll fit right in. <laughs> Don't say that. <laughs>
1: I don't see the power,
0: I don't see a changed life that you guys claim you have and so they have no interest because it weakens our credibility of the gospel. And we, You know, you guys have heard the saying takes one to no one. Right? When we were little we would use that. You're an idiot, it takes one to no one. <laughs> the world isn't stupid. Right? The world's not stupid. Um, they know they know one when they see one. If we are The word Christian means little Christs. That's what that means. So are they seeing little Christs out there, or are they seeing somebody that looks just like them? So if it looks just like them, why would they sign up for that? Why would they walk through the doors? Um, have you ever been in a department store and you couldn't tell the difference between the people that work there and the people that were shoppers? Now, it's easy to target, right? Everybody's wearing the red shirts and the khakis. But if you've ever been in a department store, I've had this happen on multiple occasions because I have to dress up for work and I'll be standing there and some woman will come up to me and she'll be like, I'm sorry sir, can you show me where this thing is? <laughs> i like, I don't have a name tag, I don't work here. And I'm on like, okay, it's on aisle 13. <laughs> but you and me, as Jesus followers, we should look different. We should look like we fit in, in this world. Jesus told his disciples, he said, listen, I want you to be wise as serpents, but I want you to be innocent as doves. Wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And too many times the world sees us wise as doves as innocent as serpents, fighting and bickering and all of the division in the church and the things that are happening. We need to have what we could call spiritual integrity. You could call, you know, consistency, spiritual integrity, what people are seeing. Now, this message today, I'll be honest, isn't real popular in the American church, but that's okay, uh, because it is kind of my sense, and I didn't really want to believe this, but the more I read and the more I listen to, that the uh, churches in today are not preaching the unashamed, unapologetic word of God um, in totality, We say it that way. Um, a lot of them are preaching um, a watered-down, power- powerless gospel that kind of bends to the culture, um, and what they're selling really is an experience. want you to come to church, and how did it make you feel? How did worship make you feel today? How did the message make you feel? Did the pastor tell enough jokes? Did you leave smiling? How was it? And um, the gospel means good news, right? The gospel means good news. Um, What is the good news? The progressive church in America today would tell people, God is love, and Jesus loves you just as you are. And that is true. But... He loves you so much he doesn't want to leave you where you are he loves you so much he doesn't want to leave you where you are um, the good news is that all of us deserve hell we deserve to be separated from him for eternity but Jesus came and took our sins of our punishment died on the cross right was buried and rose again so that we could be forgiven that is the good news But there to be good news there has to be bad news he loves you so much, he doesn't want to leave you where you are. Um, you know, if we choose to reject Jesus, people in our culture today are rejecting Jesus. If we do that, we're going to spend an eternity separated from him in a place called hell, and that's a very real fact. And, you know, people say, well, Nathan, I just can't believe that a loving God would send people to hell. That doesn't make any sense to me. And what I say to that is, you know, God is not going to force himself on anyone, he's a perfect gentleman. And if you don't want to spend eternity with Jesus, if you don't want to spend time with him, you don't have to. He's not going to make you. And so people choose not to spend time with Jesus. Okay. Consistency has to do with our example both inside and outside of the church. And if you ever feel like you're just being watched, it's because you are. And we should expect this, right? Jesus said that we are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So if you are a Christ follower, you are a light. Your life shouldn't be hidden. We're not supposed to fade into the darkness, if that makes sense. Um, it says, only let your manner of life or your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That phrase, manner of life, um, which a lot of translations say conduct, is a really interesting term, and a lot gets lost in translation when it just says manner of life or conduct. And I hope you like word study, because we're going to do some of that today on what these words mean. And the Greek word is polytumai. And the Greek word polytumai, which refers to your conduct as it pertains to your political affiliation or your allegiance. Now, don't think of politics in American politics. Um, the root word is polis, that's the name, uh, the root word is polis. And conduct means politumai, to, to behave as a citizen. To behave as a citizen of a polis. Now, a polis was basically just a city state, it's where we get our word politics or policy or police. So that's where we get that word. And the Philippians were a city-state, they were a polis of the Roman Empire. And they were very proud to be Roman citizens. So they had taken on Roman names, they had taken on Roman dress, they spoke Latin. They were very proud of that fact. and. Part of that pride was making sure that you didn't do anything that was going to bring dishonor to your polis. You didn't want to bring dishonor to that because the worst thing that could happen is that you would lose your status, lose your citizenship as a Roman, right? That would be the worst thing. And what Paul is reminding them here is that, look, you guys are a part of something. You're a citizen of heaven. You're something that is so much bigger, so much greater than any kind of earthly kingdom that you could be a part of here. Um, That phrase, kingdom of God... That is mentioned 72 times in the New Testament, Kingdom of God. We are representatives of a heavenly kingdom here on earth. And our real citizenship is in heaven. Live in such a way that we don't bring dishonor to our affiliation with Christ, with Jesus. That makes sense. Now, here's the part that's not real popular. One of the issues that's really crept into churches in America today is what's called uh, Christian nationalism. We say it that way, Christian nationalism. And Christian nationalism is really thinking of ourselves first and foremost as Americans that happen to be Christians. Instead of first and foremost, I'm a Christian, I'm a citizen of heaven. First and foremost, that happens to live in America, I'm part of a greater kingdom, I'm part of a greater family around the world that calls Jesus Christ Christ their saviors, basically trying to merge the Christian and the American identity together. Um, and that's a very dangerous thing. I attended the church once, and they had uh, flags up on top of the wall hanging uh, for all of the different missionaries that they supported. And I think this would be fantastic. I would love to do this, but I don't know if we could do this right now. But yeah, it's okay. Uh, but when we get on a building, we'll hang flags around for the different missionaries that we support. And... There was a United States flag because there were some local uh, missionaries that they were supported, and there were some other flags. And after a service one day, somebody came up to the pastor and said, uh, Listen, I think it's cool that you have the flags up there, but the American flag should actually be higher than the other ones. And he was trying to explain to him, Look, you know, these represent the countries that. We support missionaries in, and we're actually part of a greater kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not necessarily here in America. We're proud to be Americans. That's great. We're you know grateful that we live here, Uh, but that conversation did not go well. Did not go well because of this um, Christian nationalism mindset. We're blessed to live here. This country was founded uh, on Christian morals by Christian men, and because of that, we've been very blessed. But it is no longer a Christian nation. The majority of people in America have rejected Jesus. And you hear this every holiday season, right? The ACLU has a suit or, you know, a lawsuit against somebody, some group, because they have a nativity in front of, you know, the school or you can't pray in Jesus' name. Uh, They don't necessarily have a problem with God, but they do have a problem with Jesus. He's too exclusive. He's too narrow-minded. And that's what the world would cause, very narrow-minded. I had a friend of mine, and uh, he was one of the most knowledgeable people that I knew when it comes to Scripture. Um, But he has wandered away, he's kind of rejected Jesus, and he's wandered into a lot of Eastern mysticism. And he told me, he said, Nathan, you can have such a huge impact, you could reach so many people if you would just become more open-minded. And I said, no thanks. (laughs) No thanks. The majority of people have walked away from Jesus and rejected him in our country. Uh, Billy Graham said once, he said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, he's going to have to apologize to them if he does not judge America at some point in history. Now, I'm not sure if you know what the reputation of Americans is across the globe, but it's not overly favorable. You can ask a missionary. You can ask anybody that's been abroad. You can ask my folks. Um, we are known as people that are loud, that are kind of entitled, that are a little bit confrontational, rude. That is really our, rep, you know, our reputation across the globe. And and of course, we're all independently wealthy. Uh, <laughs> that's what they think was. That was not true. But the rest of them tend to be. And you know, if you're across. Uh, If you're across the pond or if you're, you know, in another country and you see Americans, you know, in this way, representing our country this way, you say they are not, not the most accurate representation of the best that we have to offer here in America. And so, too, as the church, are we an accurate representation of the kingdom that we say we belong to? In 1 John 1, 1.5, 1 John, I'm just going to go ahead and turn. If you have it, was John 1.5. This message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, we can't say that we're part of a heavenly kingdom if we live like carnal creatures. We need to be mindful that our conduct is worthy of the gospel. Be faithful citizens of heaven. You guys with me? Okay. Next, Paul says, so whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, regardless of what happens, whether I live or die, whether I get out and I'm able to come see you personally, or if I'm out and I just hear about you guys, your accountability ultimately isn't to me, it's to the Lord. Like, your ultimate accountability is to God. Anybody remember the movie, um, The Truman Show? If anybody saw that movie, really interesting premise. Uh, But Jim Carrey is Truman, he's the central character, and he's born into this man-made city that is made for television. Uh, It's kind of crazy, he's born there, and they've done lots of things to make sure he doesn't leave, and everybody in the town is an actor, except him. He thinks it's all real. And they've got millions of cameras all over the city to make sure they don't miss any waking moment of his life. And that is a pretty scary prospect. I wouldn't want cameras following me around watching every aspect of my life, but I got news for you. (laughs) Our ultimate accountability isn't to other people, it's to the Lord. He sees us 24-7, obviously. We can have all the accountability groups we want, uh, but God is our ultimate accountability And that's what Paul is saying here to them. Then he says that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now, Paul is going to give us four characteristics of believers that are living in a manner worthy of the gospel, and the first one is standing firm. And that's really what I entitled this message was "Standing Firm in a Hostile World." Uh, The Greek word for standing firm is stiko. Do I have that one? The Greek word is stiko. It means to withstand or to resist in the face of obstacles no matter what. And I'm just going to bullet point some quick rapid fire scripture for you. 1 Thessalonians three eight. For now we really live, if you stand firm in the Lord. Be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Is 1 Corinthians 16.13. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. That might sound familiar to those of us who were here uh, with Galatians, Galatians five one, And in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And take up the full armor of God that you be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The imagery here is of a soldier, right, who's going to stand his ground, who is not going to move no matter what comes his way, even if it costs him his life. And that's what Paul's saying, as Christians, as believers with our citizenship in heaven, as soldiers, we are to stand firm, not give our ground, even if it costs us our life as believers, because to live is Christ and to die is actually gain. How do we stand firm in Jesus? Well, most importantly, we need to be grounded in matters of biblical truth. Uh, You know that this, for those of you that have been here a while, you know, it's kind of a soapbox of mine, people not knowing their Bibles. And, you know, we can read devotions and we can listen to podcasts and all of that is great. But just like we talked about, um, the armor of God, we are given lots of defensive weapons and we're only given one offensive weapon. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we can take hits all we want, but if we don't have the sword, then we're not going to be able to fight off the attacks of the devil. We can stand firm, but if you want to fight him off, you want to fight back, you're going to need to know the word. When Jesus was out in the wilderness, he was out there for 40 days, and Satan came to tempt him, Jesus used the word to drive him away, and he used Deuteronomy. (laughs) I mean, if I was going to fight off the devil, I don't know if Deuteronomy would be the first place that I would turn to, but that's what he used to drive him away. Sword of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Paul here was standing firm in his faith. There was nothing that could shake him in his faith. But the only thing that he was concerned about was that, for some reason, he might be disqualified from ministry. And he doesn't mean that he would be losing his salvation, but simply losing his effectiveness, um, his voice in people's lives. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize, so that, run so that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we in imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And the context of that verse there is uh, pertaining to sexual immorality, you know, how we use our bodies. And he said, listen, I can preach to others. I can do it, but I need to discipline myself. I need to make sure that I don't become disqualified by the way that I live. I need to stand firm. So the first characteristic of living a worthy manner is standing firm. And the second is sharing. Sharing. And Paul is speaking here of unity. But unity doesn't start with S. And I wanted them all to start with S. So sharing. (laughs) Unity within the church. Being of one, one spirit, one mind. It's speaking of interdependence, right? Not being alone, not being lone rangers, but being dependent on one another. And boy, do we make it easy for for the devil when we get off by ourselves. We become a real easy target. And we are worthy targets, right? That's the reason why he's attacking us. But don't be off by yourself. We use the early church as an example of, you know, unity. And we read about it in Acts, Acts 4. 244 says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And in chapter 432, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And, you know, sometimes that's used as, you know, the context for buying property and building a compound and everybody moving out there together, you know, which sounds good sometimes. Um, But, (laughs) <laughs> we wouldn't be salt and light if we all moved into a compound together. I heard somebody say once, they said, Christians are kind of like manure. If you spread them around, they do a lot of good. But if you keep them all together, they start to stink. <laughs> so, we need to be spread around if we're going to do any good. So this group was unified in their attitudes and their perspectives. They were one in their values and in their beliefs. Now, everybody's on board for unity, right? You say unity, everybody's on board for that. But the statistics don't really bear that out, at least in our culture today. So what happens when we're not unified? There was an article that was published just over a month ago in USA Today about how American Christians are turning people away or turning people off from church. And according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, there are more than 200 Christian denominations operating in the United States today, 200 denominations, all with a different flavor, all with a different, you know, um, expression. But there's talk of even more denominations coming out later this year. And those denominations often start because of some kind of split or some kind of disunity within the church. And division is causing a lot of people to abandon Christian churches. Last year, Barna Research found that the share of practicing Christians has dropped nearly in half since the year 2000. And Gallup polling recently reported that the US church membership fell below 50% for the first time in eight decades. A lack of unity is splitting up the body of Christ. Right after Jesus finished having the Last Supper with his disciples, um, they sang a hymn and they went out to the garden. And we don't hear really many prayers that Jesus prayed. It said he went off to desolate places and he prayed and he spent time with the Father. But after he left there, in John 17, uh, we have what's been called the High Priestly Prayer. And Jesus, this entire chapter in John 17, is Jesus pouring out his heart And the whole thing is about unity. He says, God, make them one, even as we are one. And he's praying about the unity of the church and the believers. And that's not necessarily the case, unfortunately today. And before I get too heavy handed on there not being a lot of unity, I will say that if you've ever traveled, if you've ever been on a mission trip, you can go halfway around the world and embrace a brother or sister because you are one in Jesus. You can be of one mind and one spirit, which is an incredible thing. Um, You have more in common with a believer in China than you do with a stranger in high V, you know, that may not be saved. And that's a really encouraging thing that we're citizens of heaven. You could go someplace else and just automatically be in one spirit because we have unity in him. The third characteristic of a person living in a manner worthy of the gospel is striving. He says that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but also of your salvation and that from God. The Greek word for striving is sun athleo, sun athleo, sun means with, and athleo is the word from which we get athlete or athletics. And so sun athleto means to strive together. We're working as a team. This is kind of like a team sport to advance the gospel. And Paul likes sports metaphors, and so he uses here uh, another one. We have to strive together. We strive for Christ, and we strive against the devil. We strive for victory because you and I have a common enemy, an enemy that does not sleep and wants to take you out, and wants to take me out in any way possible to disqualify us, to ruin or weaken our testimony, our witness in front of, of a world that looks on. If you follow sports at all, if you've ever been involved in sports, then you're familiar with the term ball hog, right? And ball hog is somebody who wants to do it all by themselves. They may be a superstar, they may be somebody who can play really well, but they don't want to involve their teammates. And what happens a lot in those situations is some of those players have been benched or they get rid of that player altogether because while they may be fantastic on their own, you cannot continue to win at a high level if you don't play as a team. That's why baseball is so awesome. You have to play as a team. It's not a single-person sport. And I know I mention movies a lot, but if you have not seen the movie Miracle, you need to cancel your plans for this afternoon. and You need to go home and watch Miracle. Okay, it's about the Miracle on Ice, the 1980 a men's hockey team that beat Russia. And the reason it's so incredible, now we have professional athletes that are going to the Olympics and all that steam, and I think that the U.S. men's basketball team won gold, um, and, you know that's great they should win but this was back when you had to be an amateur and the Russian team was all professionals I mean they were incredible they were all superstars and the American team was just a bunch of college kids and they were good but it was laughable, the difference between talent in the American college kids, the amateur players, and what the Russians had to offer. And it was the miracle on ice because these guys had to play together. They had to figure out a way to come together and play as a team. And that's the reason why they won. And so the whole movie is just a process of them having to come together and play as a team. And it ain't easy. It wasn't easy on them. And it's not easy for us to do either. We're all different. We all have people that we really don't prefer to be around. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to play together. We have to strive together if we are going to be victorious. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 1.26, right at the beginning of it, um, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. And he's like, listen, look back at when you guys first got saved. Like, not many of you were real bright. (laughs) Not many of you were real qualified. Not, Not many of you were real influential. And yet, God chose you. Like, he didn't choose you because of your pedigree, because of how qualified you are. Like, sometimes we walk around thinking, well, God, you certainly made a good choice when you chose me. Because I am such a great example. I mean, look at what I just did. (laughs) But the truth is, if you look at who we are in his presence, it ain't pretty. But Paul's telling them, listen, you guys weren't all that. So make sure that your attitude is right. Now, we are called to strive together. The church is always going to face a world that is hostile towards the gospel. And we have to play a team if we are going to advance the truth. But we will always face a hostile world. I've heard people say things like, um, we just need to establish God's kingdom here on earth. Like, we just need to pray it down. If we can, you know, establish his kingdom, we can, you know, make it come faster, And I would say that we are citizens of heaven. We are his representatives here on earth. But his kingdom isn't going to be fully established until he comes back again and he puts all enemies under his feet. Um, Guys, it's going to be mind boggling. At the end of the tribulation, um, we're all not going to be here, by the way. You could hold a different opinion, but you'd be wrong. We're all going to be gone. (laughs) When, at the end of the tribulation, when all of the countries of the world are coming upon Israel and they're fighting against themselves and they're getting ready to wipe Israel off the map, Jesus comes back with his army and all of these countries in the world that are fighting and trying to take Israel out will turn and start firing everything at Jesus and his armies. It's going to be crazy. And he will simply wipe them out with the word. He's not coming again as the babe of Bethlehem. This time he's coming as a conquering king. And he's going to have a tattoo on his thigh and it's going to be amazing. (laughs) It's true. We strive together for righteousness and we strive against Satan and his schemes. He is working his way into churches. Uh, very subtly today. There's a lot of false teaching. Um, people who claim to be Bible-believing, born-again Christians um, are not holding up a standard that is excellent. Uh, they're bending to the winds of culture and their values, um, and so we have uh, now the approval of these different agendas, the LGBT agenda, and now we have the woke agenda, and I'm not going to preach on that today, but Peter tells us. In 2 Peter 3.16, and he's talking about some of the things that Paul has written, and he says, the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. We're to be stable because we're supposed to be in the scriptures. Social justice is not the gospel, and our testimonies aren't the gospel. They're a wonderful example of what God can do with a life and turn it around and change it for his glory, but that's not the gospel. And when you're engaged with a conversation uh, with somebody and they say something that doesn't line up, you can simply say, can you show me where that is in the Bible? Like, where does it say that in the scriptures? And if they can't show you where it is in the scripture, then it ain't biblical. All right? So, all right, I got to move on. The churches today probably would not sit under the preaching of theologians of yesterday for very long. I mean, people like Jonathan Edwards and um, D.L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon and some of these guys, um, George Whitfield, uh, because the way they preached was so unapologetic. And people today would say that they are simply out of touch, that they don't get it today in our culture. Um, But they were preaching the truth, and they are holding up a standard that never changes it was true in their day, and it's true today. And then Paul says, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. He says, don't be frightened. Don't be freaked out like a horse that, you know, gets scared and throws off its rider, right? Not like an elephant and a mouse, an elephant that's scared of a mouse. Um, it's harmless. The early church had reason to be fearful. I mean, they're the ones that watched Paul and Silas get beaten up and thrown in prison. And they didn't get to move on. like They lived there. So it was a very real fear. And Paul is saying, listen, the very fact that you're not scared of them, don't be fearful of your opponents. And that very fact, when you do that, that's going to be a clear sign of your salvation, proof of your allegiance, but also a clear sign of their destruction. They're both signs. And get this. He marks his children this way and he marks his enemies this way. They're both. Clear signs, And this leads us to our final characteristic. First was standing firm. Second, sharing, then striving. And last but not least, suffering. I told you this was more stick than carrot today. <clears throat> suffering. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. For Jesus' sake, we have been granted both faith and suffering both faith and suffering. The Greek word for grant is charis from which we get our word charity that has been granted or been given graciously. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that for, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of your own doing it is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Our faith is a gift but we don't often think of suffering as a gift but all that pertains to salvation is a gift even suffering um, it tests our faith to make sure that it's genuine it is an integral part of divine grace suffering is jesus told his disciples that if any man would come after me let him pick up his cross and follow me now that doesn't jar us today the way it would have been i mean they would have that would have been a jaw dropper for them pick up your cross pick up your instrument of torture um, and crucify yourself, be crucified to your flesh, and follow me." The prosperity preachers of our day would be well served to go back and read those passages because they're probably not using them in their sermons today. Paul writes this. The church in Thessalonica was under tremendous pressure. They were being um, persecuted greatly. And so Paul writes this to this church that is suffering, Second Thessalonians 1. Says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the church of God for your steadfastness in the faith, in all your persecutions, and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is the evidence of righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with afflictions those who afflict you, and so to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. With the Lord Jesus. Is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray to you that our God will make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our lord jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our god and the lord jesus christ suffering is part of it it's part of the deal our our country has been so blessed um and as such our country our christians uh, churches have gotten a little bit lazy and apathetic and we don't really experience suffering Here in America, suffering and persecution has always served to advance the gospel around the world. Um, I wonder at times, I wonder at times if we pray that our religious freedoms would be protected because we're afraid of suffering. And we enjoy tremendous religious freedom, and I am thankful for that, and that is fantastic. And it allows us to do lots of things for the gospel and for the cause of Christ. But I just have to wonder um, if that is the reason sometimes that we praise, because we don't want to suffer. I mean, we don't want to sign up for that necessarily, um, but we shouldn't be afraid of it either. We shouldn't be afraid of our opponents. Um, Pastors are being jailed now. Churches are being bombed, and Christian villages are being raided right now around the world. And I just have to wonder what would happen in America to our churches if that started happening here. Um, Would we still gather together? Would we stand firm? Would we strive together and be in unity if those kind of things happened? And would we view suffering as a gift? Um, I heard a quote this week uh, that goes something like this, tough times create strong men. And strong men bring about good times. And good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. And so the cycle goes round and round. Uh, Think back to 2001 uh, when the World Trade Centers were bombed, right? When they came down and the plane went down that was going after the Pentagon. When that happened, when we were under a trap attack, everyone laid aside every difference, every small thing that they were bickering about and came together because then we were unified against a common enemy because we had been attacked. We were striving for freedom and against terrorism, that's what was happening at that time, and we weren't gonna be intimidated by our opponents. And that's what Paul is saying here, um, that the stakes are even higher, because we are part of an earthly, or a heavenly kingdom that's under attack, and souls are at stake. And we live in easy times right now, but that doesn't mean that we have to be weak spiritually. We need to strive together against the enemy so that we don't get lulled asleep. Um, We may be going through suffering, but that will only cause us to be unified, to come together. Um, and I mentioned Thessalonians before. In First Thessalonians, it's the first letter that Paul wrote um, in chapter 3. He says, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Don't be surprised. The word conflict that Paul has used there, he's telling the church um, that he still has in the Greek word um, agon, it's the Greek word agon is conduct, which is a struggle or a contest they use this kind of in the um, athletic contest, in the struggle like the Olympics. Um, Or in a story where you have an antagonist or a protagonist, right? Um, And it's the word where we get uh, agony. The Greek word conduct is where we get agony Um, and so you might say, Nathan? You need to give us some hope before we walk out this door. Let's not end on suffering. Romans 5.3 says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We will not be put to shame. We can rejoice. It is a sign of our salvation and proof of our allegiance. Um, It's part of the process that makes us more like his son, right? To be able to show our allegiance to him, proof that we're not of this world. There's no other way, gang, to go deep with Jesus than to go through trials, than to go through suffering. That's just the way it is. Um, And if you want, somebody wants to go grab the kids, you can grab them now. And if the worship team wants to come back up, um, somebody asked C.S. Lewis once, they said, C.S., why do the righteous suffer? And his response to that was really good. He said, why not? They're the only ones that can take it. Why do the righteous suffer? They're the only ones that can take it. Um, the famous preacher, D.L. Mooney, was told about a Christian woman who was always bright, always cheerful, always optimistic, even though she was confined to her room because of her illness. And she lived in an attic apartment on the fifth floor of an old building. And a friend decided to visit her one day and she brought another, you know, woman with her. She just happened to be, a, you know, a wealthy woman and a person that was very influential. And since there was no elevator, they had to take the stairs. And as they got to the first floor, this woman said, "Man, this place is filthy. This place is disgusting." And uh, the other friend said, "Listen, it's better higher up." And so they started to climb. And they got to the third floor, the fourth floor. And she says, "You know, this is even worse than it was on the first floor. This is terrible. This place." And she said, "It's high. It's better higher up." And so they went in. And even though, even though the room was clean and there were, you know, flowers on the windowsill and it was all set up nicely, um, she couldn't help but blurt out to the woman who was laying there bedridden, you know, I'm really sorry that you have to live this way. And the woman without hesitation looked at her and said, it's better higher up, it's better higher up. Um, this way this woman lived was shiny, through her joy that she could have in any situation because she had her eyes on the eternal, not on the temporal, not on the things of this world, because it's better, higher up. We are earth born, but heaven bound. Our mandate is to stand firm, to share in the faith, to strive together, and also to suffer. If we do these things, we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel.